The Belly of the Beast with Brendan McCauley, a Go Loud original. Broy, now having committed the most daring act of espionage, is faced with a new challenge, the consequences. The auxiliaries raided 21 Dawson Street and confiscated many documents. They knew that the real incriminating stuff were those papers that Ned Broy had typed up. I had the option of socking the two senior officers and trying to shoot my way through the auxiliaries. In science, Newton's third law states, for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. Ned Broy, however, had not betrayed the laws of science. He had betrayed the laws of the empire and he was about to face the consequences. This was the empire which only recently had executed the leaders of the 1916 Rising. The empire which preferred reaction to reason and power to understanding. The empire whose secrets he had placed in the hands of the enemy. Perhaps it was of deluded notions of chivalry or possibly old-fashioned misogyny. But the British in Ireland completely underestimated the courage and determination of Irish women in the War of Independence. Julia O'Donovan was a wealthy businesswoman who had properties in Rathgar, including a dairy at 77A Rathgar Road. There is a house there now built on that site, And as I mentioned earlier, it became part of my lockdown walks to locate these addresses. Ned Broy and James McNamara spent many times in the dairy with fellow DMP, uniformed policemen and detectives. The dairy was a perfect place to use as a hub for subversive activities. It took deliveries of milk churns and butter boxes, which were delivered by train from all over the country. Milk churns and butter boxes were the perfect size and shape for concealing guns and ammunition, as well as dispatches and other communications. Michael Collins slept in her house in 13 Airfield Road, which is on a very unassuming cul-de-sac off Rathgar Avenue. This, of course, was on my many ramblings during lockdown. The house is in a terrace, and because it's a cul-de-sac, it would be easy to monitor traffic on the street. It also has escape routes in the neighbouring properties and in the lanes behind the house. Julia O'Donovan's description of the comings and goings in her house in 1920 and 21 are fascinating, with Ned Broy in the thick of the war effort. It's funny that she mentions being involved in smuggling arms and hiding wanted men, but in the middle of it all she says that she's time to attend the opera. Life continued for many people just as it always did. In her witness statements, she says, I lived at 15 Airfield Road, Rathgar, and on the 1st of January 1920, Mick Collins and my cousin, Garoda Sullivan, who raised the Republican flag on the GPO in Easter 1916, came to live in our house for about a month non-stop, but on many separate nights after that too. We were startled one night at midnight in February 1920 by a knock to the door. Garode opened it and found it was Tom Cullum, head of IRA intelligence, who had brought some very important castle documents procured by Broy. When the knock came, 
Garrod and Mick were going through Dahl loan papers, I think from Sligo, and on hearing the knock, they thought it was a raid and they burnt the papers. Shortly after that, they left the house, but they came back to lunch every Sunday, without exception, until the truce in July 1921. Usually they brought someone else with them. During this time, guns were sent in egg boxes to our house or to our shop on the Rathgar Road. One day we got a phone call from a friendly official at Kingsbridge train station that six butter boxes had arrived and one of them was broken and that the contents could be seen. We didn't know what to do. I sent my daughter Eileen, who was 14, to go and get in touch with Mick or Garoud, who she found, and delivered the message. Then we got another frantic call from Kingsbridge as the broken butter boxes hadn't yet been collected. I then sent my van man and my son, who was 12 at the time, to collect the butter box and store it in the stable at the dairy. The box was filled with bomb cases. One night in the autumn of 1920, I came home and my daughter told me a messenger called to ask permission for a meeting to be held in the house. My daughter gave permission and placed the usual refreshments in the drawing room. She was rather indignant to find that one of those at the meeting, she said it was Frank Thornton or Tom Cullen, had to send out for more refreshments as she had not expected so many visitors to come. We heard later that Broy of the detective branch was there and had brought many others. The meeting, which lasted a couple of hours, was over when I got home from the opera. From time to time, most of the prominent volunteers in Dublin and Cork came to our house, which Mick used as a rendezvous for such meetings. Eileen McRain was a lecturer in English and a student of the 1916 signatory Thomas McDonough in the National University in Aylesford Terrace. Itself a rare and an unusual occupation for a woman at the time. She was an active member of Common Naman and played a pivotal role unwittingly in the life of Ned Broy. McGrain had a flat at 21 Dawson Street in Dublin, which currently houses the Dawson Jewellers near the St. Stephen's Green End. This flat and the files stored therein were soon to have a catastrophic impact on the life of Ned Broy. Eileen McGrain was a founder member of the university branch of Common Amon when she was at UCD. Very well-educated woman, had an MA, and then she went on to teach in Armagh. But she kept up her nationalist activities and subsequently lost her job as a result of that. She was you were quite unemployable in the North, you know, by demonstrating too much advanced nationalism. She returned to Dublin. She took out a rather large flat at 21 Dawson Street. She was given a position. She says she was paid expenses but not paid a salary to work in a capacity as intelligence and propaganda, etc. She took the flat at 21 Dawson Street and it was a large flat. And because she was working in an unpaid expenses only capacity for IRA GHQ intelligence, she offered an office there to Michael Collins. Collins took the office and used it as storage for a vast quantity of intelligence documents. Now, very few people knew about the existence of this particular office. Now, as I said, he kept a vast amount of papers in there and it's completely unclear to her from her her statements, nor is it clear to anything I've seen in the archives, 
why the auxiliaries, F Division of the auxiliaries, raided her flat there on New Year's Eve 1920. But raided they did. And among the documents that they found in their very thorough search were some very, very incriminating ones. I mean, there were photographs and a list of those who were executed in Bloody Sunday a month earlier, of the British who were executed incriminating in the extreme. From the Ned Broy perspective, the letters typed out from the Dublin Metropolitan Police were the real giveaway. All of the documents were taken away and Eileen McGrain was taken away. And by the way, she locked herself into the bathroom and when they finally got her out, they recovered some handguns and some ammunition. Uh, they claimed they found dum-dum bullets in there. But she was taken to Dublin Castle and she was interrogated by the, the chief of police in there, the self-styled O, Ormond Winter, until six o'clock in the morning. So she must have been absolutely exhausted. But it was big news all around the castle. And in fact, Mark Sturgis, in his diaries of his days there, talks about Eileen McGrain's arrest and said they got some very good stuff and that she was found in the bath and uh, that he hoped she was suitably robed before O went on to interview her. When they examined the documents, they knew that the real incriminating stuff were those papers that Ned Broy had typed up. Now, his name wasn't on them, but it was quite clear that they had come from G Division and there were only a few typists within G Division. So it was a process of elimination as to which one was the IRA's mole within G Division. Broy was immediately suspected. On the morning following the raid, Broy met with Michael Collins and he told him of the raid. Collins warned him to be prepared for the inevitable inquiries from the British authorities once they had examined the documents. How must Ned Broy have felt as he returned to work in the G Division after that meeting? Had his double life as a covert spy for the Irish Volunteers and a detective for the G Division in the Dublin Metropolitan Police finally caught up with him? Broy had always known that if he was caught, at best his career was over and a long prison stretch would follow. But at worst, and far more likely, he would be shot as a traitor to the Crown. Broy tells us... On New Year's Eve 1920, the auxiliaries raided 21 Dawson Street and confiscated many documents. Among the documents were a large number of copies of secret reports from the political section of the detective division supplied by me to Michael Collins. All the documents were from a time over a year previously and should have been destroyed as they had ceased to be of any use or relevance. Amongst the papers were copies of telephone messages received by the G Division during Easter week 1916. These were bound in book form as was the usual practice. Some of the messages were from loyal people giving information as to where volunteers had taken up position or where they had snipers on roofs or in windows. This was the day book that Michael Collins took from the archive room in the Great Brunswick Street barracks the night in April 1919 when I smuggled Collins and Noonan into the G Division file room. It seems that Ned Broy had no possible explanation or defence to offer as he awaited the inevitable conclusion to his double life as a spy and a DMP detective. 
One of the great selling points to us when we bought our home in Turnure was the garden. It wasn't long after we'd moved in that I discovered from the deeds that the first owner of the house was Ned Roy. It was this discovery which led to a quest to find out more about Ned Roy and his connection to our home. Our house is at the end of a terrace of four and the garden runs along the side of the house. At the back of the house stands two large deciduous trees, which we are told are over 150 years old, so they were certainly here in Ned Roy's time. Every year, starting at the end of October and going on into mid-December, one of my weekly chores is sweeping and collecting the voluminous quantities of autumn leaves shed by the horse chestnut and the sycamore trees. It's a tedious, repetitive, but occasionally satisfying task. Now that I know more about Ned Broy, I'm sure it's a job that he must have enjoyed doing. Being outdoors in the safety and sanctuary of his own home as he reflected back on his days and months in jail following his arrest in February 1921. It was the night of New Year's Eve when Dubliners met at midnight to hear the pealing of the bells at Christchurch Cathedral ringing in the new year of 1921. At the same time on that night, the auxiliaries, the highly efficient officers of the notorious Black and Tans, raided the flat of common Naman activist Captain Eileen McGrain, living at 21 Dawson Street. McGrain was a lecturer in English and a student of the 1916 signatory and poet Thomas MacDonough in the National University in Aylesford Terrace. Captain McGrain, as part of her common Naman duties, travelled around the country, especially in counties down and Clare, training women in weaponry, military drills and discipline and encouraged the continued development of the organisation. McGrain, who shared the flat with two others, Mary McCarthy and Margot Trench, had offered a small spare room as office space to Michael Collins, who was also Minister for Finance in the fledgling and illegal Dáil Éireann and who was one of the most wanted criminals in Britain and Ireland, according to the British military in Dublin. Michael Collins had a desk and a filing cabinet in this small inner room. The auxiliaries seized copious papers and files during their raid on the 31st of December, 1920. One item was a daily record book that contained a record of telephone calls to the G Division from concerned and loyal citizens reporting on the activities of the Irish volunteers before and during Easter week 1916. Michael Collins had taken this from the archive room at the G Division headquarters on the 19th of April 1919, when Ned Broy had smuggled Collins and another IRB man, Sean Noonan, into the file room so that they could get an understanding of how the British intelligence machine in Ireland operated. Much more disastrously and catastrophic for Ned Broy, however, was the discovery and confiscation of the daily and weekly reports that he had typed and smuggled as carbon copies to Michael Collins and the IRA intelligence staff. Eileen McGrain was immediately arrested 
and the next day an investigation was commenced by the Dublin Castle authorities. The discovery of the documents had the immediate effect of all political duties of the G Division being transferred back to Dublin Castle from Great Brunswick Street Police Barracks and under the control of Inspector Bruton and the new Superintendent Purcell was appointed to head the rest of the G Division. The other effect was to create a paranoia amongst the DMP leadership and rank-and-file officers that the IRA intelligence was far more effective and efficient than it was in reality. The raid on 21 Dawson Street in December 1920 was an indication of how successful the auxiliaries were in combating the IRA. Contrary to any assumption that the assassination of the leaders of the auxiliaries on that bloody Sunday morning in November 1920 had weakened them, the success of the auxiliaries had in fact been quite spectacular. Between August 1920 and July 1921, 6,300 raids and searches had been carried out in the Dublin district alone by the auxiliaries on IRA activists and suspected arms dumps and safe houses. There is no doubt that Ned Broy was in trouble and in deadly trouble. He had always said that he knew if he was caught, he would at best lose his job, be imprisoned, but at worst and more likely be shot as a traitor to the Crown. Despite this, Ned Broy continued to act in a most cavalier, cool and detached manner. Maybe it was these characteristics that allowed Ned Broy to skirt with danger on a daily basis over the previous three years. He also knew that to go into hiding would imply that he was guilty and put his fellow DMP men, loyal to the IRA, in immediate danger by being guilty by association. Ned Broy tells us in his witness statement to the Bureau of Military History that Superintendent Purcell was friendly towards him and had a dislike of his fellow senior officers in Dublin Castle. Broy must have had the nervous constitution of Hercules as he continued to go to work as normal and listened very carefully to his conversations with Purcell in order to glean any information of the direction of the investigation about the incriminating documents. Purcell had warned Broy that whoever took the documents, that Broy was bound to be blamed, as he was in charge of the political office at the time that the documents were typed one year previously. Broy, despite the perilous situation in which he found himself, continued to meet with Collins and to facilitate the augmentation of the arms available through the IRA through the passing on of critical information. In his witness statement, Broy goes on to tell us, I continued to meet Collins every night during this time and of course had to take extra precautions in doing so. One of the means I had to adopt was to wait at a tram stop until a tram had got well underway and then sprint after it. To the great annoyance of the conductors who never failed to lecture me on the dangers of that unorthodox method of boarding their moving vehicles. No man on two legs could have followed me on the tram when I adopted that means, and so I was safe from unwelcome shadowing. Just before leaving for one of those first meetings with Collins after the raid on Dawson Street, I accidentally learned that the Junior Army and Navy stores on the Lear Street had a parcel of a dozen Webley revolvers and some thousand rounds of ammunition ready for the British Army quartermaster to collect. I informed Collins of this, 
and Liam Tobin's men impersonated the quartermaster and collected the consignment. After a few weeks of the investigation, Broy must have known that the net was tightening around him and surely imminent arrest was inevitable. He goes on to tell us... In mid-January 1921, a few weeks after the raid, a detective sergeant was able to pin me down as having typed two of the reports for him, copies of which had been captured at 21 Dawson Street. But by a strange coincidence, the copies found of these two reports had been typed by a machine which typed 12 letters to the inch instead of the usual 10 letters. And all the typewriters in the detective office in Brunswick Street were of the normal 10 to the inch variety. I was not slow, needless to say, to point out this fact to him, and that had the effect of further perplexing the police commissioners. The real explanation, which the authorities did not know, is that whilst I had typed out the two reports, while the detective sergeant stood by me, and I dared not make an extra copy in his presence. I had simply taken the used carbon copies from the waste paper basket and passed these on to Collins, who had one of his confidential secretaries, Miss Moran, typed them out on a portable typewriter which had the 12 characters to the inch. The Lupin-like Dublin detective seemed to have escaped on this occasion, but this was a temporary reprieve. Some days after this, Broy was summoned to the Chief Commissioner's office. The Commissioner handed Broy the considerable haul of documents seized in Dawson Street, which numbered about 100 reports. He was asked to comment on the seized documents. Broy admitted to typing the documents. This was his job, after all, but denied any knowledge as to how they got into enemy hands. He explained that two of the documents could not have been typed by him. Again, this narrowest of reasonable doubt spared him. Things dragged on like this until the third week in February and I was directed to go along with Superintendent Purcell to the Commissioner's office in Dublin Castle. I remained cool and tried to appear detached, but in my heart I think I knew that this was the end. However, there were several times like this over the past few weeks when the end did not come to pass. Purcell and Inspector Bruton were summoned into the Commissioner's office. Any doubts as to the purpose of this meeting were soon shattered. Purcell emerged from the Commissioner's office, trembling, and his face was as white as a sheet. In a quivering voice, he told me I was to be arrested for giving out the documents to the Sinn Féiners. The inspector, although a loyalist, was also shocked and rendered speechless. I, of course, was not surprised. I always knew that my spying for the IRA could lead to my arrest imprisonment or even execution, but I had to express my indignation to the best of my ability for the sake of appearances. At that exact moment, and for a matter of seconds, I had the option of socking the two senior officers and trying to shoot my way through the auxiliary sentries at the outer gate. But I had previously decided I would not try to escape as that would confirm my guilt, but also put McNamara and the other DMP men I was friendly with in grave danger. I was searched and my official 32 automatic pistol was taken from me. A DMP motor van with eight men and an inspector took me to Arbor Hill Prison where I was again searched in complete silence and despite the intimidating and dangerous and perilous predicament in which I found myself, 
I had one of the best night's sleep of my life in a cell at the corner of Arbor Hill Prison, nearest the prison commandant's office. I had been on high alert and living in a state of constant fear and anxiety for the previous few months. Arbor Hill Military Prison is the smallest of Dublin's Victorian prisons, built in 1838. It has the Royal Barracks, now known as Collins Barracks National Museum, to the south, and St. Brickens Military Hospital to the northwest. In the grounds of Arbor Hill are the graves of the signatories of the 1916 proclamation. A doorway beside the 1916 memorial graves gives access to the Irish United Nations Veterans Association Memorial Garden and on into the warren of streets built for the labouring classes and now home to the urban chic gentrified residents of Stonybatter. Ned Broy certainly was not thinking of any of this when he was moved into solitary confinement. Nor was he thinking that Arbor Hill Military Prison was just within the five kilometre radius from his future home in Terenure and that this allowed me to cycle there during lockdown and investigate around the area. Ned Broy must have been in fear and dread for his life. In solitary confinement, he ate in his cell and was allowed to walk up and down in a small corridor for half an hour each day, accompanied by two soldier warders. His nerves may have been soothed by several factors, not least the tradition of the IRA to carry out successful prison breaks. In our next episode, Roy awaits the consequences of his actions. He addressed me as my poor boy and his hands trembled. A sense of fear, dread and foreboding came over me which I could not shake off. This podcast is researched, written and presented by me, Brendan McCauley. The podcast is produced and edited by Orn O'Halloran, sound design from Lachlan Hart. The podcast is executive produced by Owen Brennan for Go Loud. Darren Cleary is our commissioning editor. This podcast is brought to you by Go Loud. Don't forget to like, rate, and subscribe to the podcast.